Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. This is the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I've got a great guest for you today, so let's get started. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Siggy Coco. Siggy is the founder of Down to Earth Design and can be found on buildnaturally.com. Siggy is an architect, builder, and teacher extraordinaire. She founded Down to Earth Design back in 1998 and has been designing and building with natural materials in the Mid-Atlantic region ever since then. She's an encyclopedia of building and design knowledge, which she often uses to help guide new builders and designers on natural building forums on Facebook and on her blog. In this episode, we get to talk in depth about the anatomy of straw bale walls, the key differences between thermal mass and insulation, and how to make use of both wall systems for your location and your climate. Siggy also gives invaluable advice for troubleshooting some of the trickier aspects of applying natural plasters, and also different additives to the mix, so keep a notebook on hand for this really information-heavy interview. Now, I know a couple of you are thinking, hey, wait a second, I think we've heard from Siggy Coco before, and that's true. I did an interview with her a couple of months back, and I put it in an article which you can find under the news section at AbundantEdge.com. So if anybody wants to get to know a little bit more about her background, how she got started in natural building, and a lot of other things that we won't cover in this interview, it's all in the article under news on AbundantEdge.com. Now, just a little heads up before we get started. The place where I'm living and working in Guatemala right now, the owners have nine dogs on the property. So you're going to hear some minor contributions from our canine friends. Every once in a while, they go into a little frenzy and get all excited and stuff. And it's not going to be hard to get the context and the information out of the interview, but just know that they're going to make a couple of uh, contributions to the episode throughout. So with that little advisory, let's get right into the interview. Here's Siggy Coco. Thank you so much for joining me today, Siggy Coco. It's a pleasure to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. How are things with you in the middle of winter in the Northeast right now? Uh, well, we've gotten off pretty late this winter so far, but we're about to get a little snowstorm tonight, so a little stormy. My goodness, and you're managing build projects in that weather? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It goes all winter long. Not the heaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I remember some of those uh, construction projects that I worked on in Minnesota in those types of conditions, too. Well, I, Let's jump yeah. right into the first question because I know we've got a lot of material to cover. If you're ready. Sounds great. All right. Now, Absolutely. I know that you have specialized in straw bale construction since you started your company. Can you explain the anatomy of a straw bale building for me? Sure. So there's, there's, there's two different approaches to straw bale building. Um, if you picture big, fuzzy bricks of straw, um, you can either lay those bricks and then put a structural beam on top of it, tie that beam down to the foundation, and then actually use the straw to hold up the roof of your building, and that's called load-bearing straw bale. Or you can build some frame structure, which is what I usually do because I'm in lots of, lots of weather, as we already talked about here, um, and build the frame, either with the beam or even to stud walls, put your roof on, and then infill the straw, also laying like bricks, infill the straw in between. Either way, and then it usually gets plastered on either side, although the outside could either be plastered or have siding on it. Sure, now you said that you mostly do the timber framing because of the resources that you have and the weather that you have to protect against in your region. What would be some of the 
acceptable ways to do a load-bearing straw bale house? Or what conditions? Um, in what conditions would it be acceptable? So there's actually, there's a, there's a woman, um, Barbara Jones, I believe her name is, in uh, England. And it rains there all the time. And she came up with a method that would work anywhere. And that is, um, she builds the roof on the ground, and then she temporarily props it up, and then builds the building below, load-bearing, straw bale, and then just lowers the roof onto the, the load-bearing straw bale walls. And that would work anywhere. But if you live in a dry climate, you wouldn't have to go to that length. You could just build your load-bearing walls, um, compress the, that top beam that goes around the walls, compress that down to the foundation, and then you're good to go. If you're not worried about rain, you can just build your walls. But if you're worried about rain, it's safer to build underproof. That's really cool. I haven't heard of that method before. Where could listeners go to find instructions on how to build that way? Oh, that's such a good question. And I forget the name of her website off the top of my head, but she does have a book. I'm at my shelf right now trying to find it for you. Um, Don't worry about it if you can't I'm find it right now. You can tell me about this later, yeah, and I, I can will put all that in the show notes on the website. Perfect. That sounds perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, now tell me, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of a straw bale building? Yeah, so I would say your main advantage with straw bale is it's the least expensive way to get the most insulating wall system um, that, you know, that's really feasible. And it, as well, is non-toxic, it's healthy for you, right? So you get all these side benefits. But I would say the main advantage is that you're for a very low cost. Um, you're getting a super insulated, super energy system. Um, and to me, one of the most exciting advantages is that because it's something that's simple to learn, you can learn within a day, you can feel more or less like an expert in laying straw bales. Um, resizing them, shaping them, knocking them, anything that you know, needs to happen to build a wall. And what that means is there is an opportunity to participate hands-on with a straw building that wouldn't happen with almost any other construction technique. Um, well, that happens with natural building generally, but any conventional construction technique that we use today. So to me, those are those sort of the biggest, most exciting advantages. Um, and I see the biggest disadvantage is that you're trading off um, cost and ease of construction, you're trading that off for time. It just it takes longer. And so that either means you need to make really good friends and invite them over for a work party, or, um, you know, the labor piece is going to cost more. So one or the other. Or it's going to take longer, right? So if you're doing it yourself, then it, just, it takes longer to build. Now, so what part of the process takes longer than putting up, say, a uh a stick stud frame construction? Well, so with, well, the bales period take, take a long time. If you, so if you have two people building a stud frame wall, they can put a wall up in a day. I mean, less than a day. They can put a whole house's worth of walls up in a day. Um, if you have two people installing straw bales um, for a similar size house, you know, that where you put all the walls up in a day, it would take you probably at least a week to put in a it's just because you're individually putting each bale in. Um, sure, that makes The difference sense. is you're then plaster ready, right? So, but, but it's, uh, it's just more time consuming because you 
each individual bale is placed in the that they um, So you also work with a lot of earthen elements in your designs. Can you explain some of the advantages of mixing these wall systems, straw bale and say cob or adobe, and some ex uh, specific examples where they might work really well together? Yeah, so it's it's sort of the perfect perfect combination of materials in my opinion. So um, earthen materials are really, really versatile, right? So you can use them to make floors, you can use them to make plaster, you can make adobe bricks, you can make um, sculpted cob walls, which is basically adobe, but you place it right in the wall. So you can use it as a So there's so many different materials that you can make with clay. Um, and the difference is that clay is a mass material and the straw is an insulating material. And when you combine mass inside super insulation, you end up with a much more efficient total building envelope um, that doesn't want to change temperature inside. So it creates much more consistent temperature regardless of what is going on outside. Um, so, so you end up with a more efficient wall system, for one. And then the second is that clay specifically acts as a humidity controller. So if the air is, um, so picture a bathroom, for example. If you, when you take a shower and the air in the bathroom is really humid and you have clay walls, well, it absorbs that extra, excess humidity instead of the humidity condensing on the walls. So when you get out of an, a shower, like when I get out of my shower and I don't have clay in my bathroom, um, the mirror is all foggy, right? But if you have clay in there, the mirror is not foggy because the clay has absorbed the excess humidity, and then it releases it when the air has less humidity than the wall. And it never is wet. It's not that the wall is getting wet. It's just absorbing the excess that's in the air and then releasing it over time. So sort of a humidity regulator as well. So where I live, where we have quite humid summers, you increase the comfort inside by having a high mass and the humidity controller. So that's sort of this yeah, that's not something to overlook either. These these materials are super fun to work with. And that's remarkable. I've never heard exactly. that about the mirror not fogging up. A lot of the natural yeah. material bathrooms that I've used in the past um, have been plastered with lime and they're slightly absorbent, ah. but not nearly as much as clay, so I'm I'm still yet to see that, but that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's my favorite little magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get really in depth into the issue that I know that you talk a lot about on the Facebook forums and the other places where you interact with the natural building community. This is the infamous topic: what is the difference between thermal mass and insulation, and how can you explain some of the advantages of um, where each of these different types of wall systems apply most advantageously. Yeah, this is this is my pet topic, um, <laughs> and and I feel like it's it's the most misunderstood piece of natural building. That what happens very frequently is there's all these photos of these beautiful natural buildings, and people fall in love with a specific style or look or specific building even, and they say, okay, I'm just going to repeat that but they don't think about, okay, what is the climate where I'm living? Does that material actually make sense where I live? And so, the re so it's really, to me, imperative to understand the difference between insulation and thermal mass. And the difference is that an insulation material 
takes energy from point A, one side of the wall, one side of the roof, right? So from inside or outside to point B, and it slows down the flow of the energy from one side to the other. So it's like a, it's a resistor to that thermal flow, right? So if you picture heat always travels from the hot side to the cold side. And if you're trying to heat your house and you have high insulation, then that heat is going to stay inside more and it's not going to flow through the wall to outside. And the thing with almost every insulation material that actually is insulating are little tiny air pockets. So um, if you picture these little air pockets that are all next to each other, the uh, temperature has to change in one air pocket and then transfer to the next air pocket and transfer to the next, and that's a really slow process. So if you picture the straw bales, for example, that are, it's a straw, and inside that straw is air. And even when the straw is compressed, there's still little air pockets in there. And it's that air that is actually resisting the thermal flow from one side of the wall to the other side of the wall. Um, so it's to keep the hot side hot and the cool side cool. Um, right, the molecules is more like a... The molecules in gas are really far apart. Isn't that the reason why... Um, temperature has a difficult time changing in between those spaces just because they're they're so removed from one another. So it's it's literally um, it's literally a, a little bubble of air. It's a picture bubble wrap shrunken down. Exactly. It's not even a, it's not even the molecule of the air. It's the, because you need the, a heat transfer, right? So you're transferring the heat from one bubble in the bubble wrap to the next bubble in the bubble wrap. And there's a space in between. So in order to transfer that heat, it's a very slow process. So that's a great way to visualize so it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and bubble wrap would be a great influence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there's air pockets. It's a shame um, that doesn't come out of the ground and, and growing trees. I know, right? Well, I love the plastic, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the thermal mass, in, it's not an insulator. Right? It's not slowing the flow of temperature from, you know, the hot side to the cold side. What it's doing is it's acting like a battery. And so if you picture a rechargeable battery that um, absorbs and releases heat energy. So when there is an excess of heat energy, whether it's because it's hot outside and the air is hot, whether it's um, the sun hitting something, whether it's you put this thermal mass next to a fireplace so the absorb the heat from the fire. Um, anytime there's an excess of heat, the, the battery, the, the thermal mass, will absorb the excess heat and store it. And whenever the um, ambient temperature around is cooler than the mass, it releases that heat back into the air. So effectively what it does is it tries to come to equilibrium all the time between the air temperature on either side of the wall and the battery of the thermal mass. So what happens is when you have a thermal mass material in a cold climate is you're trying to be warm inside, it's cold outside, and you have, instead of an insulation, instead of something that's just keeping the heat in, you have a battery that's trying to come to equilibrium between your inside temperature and your outside temperature. So the outside is constantly trying to take the heat. So the mass itself is trying to take the heat from the inside and it's 
trying to send it to warm up, warm up the outside all the time. And the worst bit is that you have generally, in, if you're in a climate with winter, you have a more humid environment inside than you have outside. And what that means is that that mass, which is trying to come to equilibrium between, let's say, it's 20 degrees outside and you're trying to have it 65 degrees outside, that's a 45 degree temperature change. And somewhere in that wall system, it is freezing. There's a freezing point, right? It, it hits 32 degrees. And the humidity inside your space is trying to trap through that clay thermal mass. It hits that cold point and it condenses. And now you have liquid in the same spot in your wall, and it can build up over time, and that can cause mold bloom. So you can end up with a mold bloom inside your wall because you use the wrong material. Um, and so when people, I think the confusion is that people think, oh, well, a cob wall or an adobe wall, it takes a long time to heat up, so it must be an insulator. That is not the point. An insulator doesn't shut. An insulator is containing the on one side and not allowing it to travel to the other side. Um, and so if you live, so my rule of thumb is this, if you live somewhere where you will use energy to heat or cool your space ever, then you should have an insulator between you and the outside. Now does that count if places where people where use energy to cool or heat their space unnecessarily? Because there's a lot of warm climates where people run their air conditioning and there are much better ways to cool that space. Right. So that would be the caveat. So to me, as a, as a designer, what I would try to do first is design it so that it stays passively comfortable in that climate. Right. So what are the strategies? And if you live, you know, there are passive solar homes in Colorado that use zero heat energy. Um, so if you live in a climate that's sunny enough, even if it's cold, you could have a passive way to heat your space, stay comfortable inside, not need heat energy. But the only way to keep that solar energy inside is to be insulated. So if you had, if you built with Cobb in Colorado, and you use the sun to heat the space, and the cob was between you and the outside, not not just as a wall, but between you and the outside. Then you're still overnight going to lose all that heat to the cob and the outside. But if you super insulate and you gather the sun's energy directly, then you're going to keep that heat energy inside. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's going to make sense yeah. to a lot of people who have had um, some misconceptions about how that works as well. That was really well illustrated. Um, so are there any appropriate applications for thermal mass materials in exterior walls, specifically, in cold climates? So I, I would say, to me, the answer is no. Um, and, and there's one caveat, and that caveat to me. So, and we're talking exterior walls, right? We're talking walls between your space and the outside. Yes. Um, so the caveat would be if it's a space that's never going to be heated. So 
I would build a cob shed here, no problem. I wouldn't worry about that at all because it's going to be the same ambient temperature on both sides. So it's not going to have a dew point, it's not going to have a change in humidity, um, and I'm not trying to keep the space. So that would be totally fine. Um, and then using a combination of the two is almost always, in almost every climate, a combination of the two is your, is your best solution, right? So um, if you take the Colorado example, where you have super sunny days and you're trying to naturally heat your home without using energy. If you put heavy insulation, so let's say straw bales, all around the outside to keep whatever you've warmed up inside and all of the cold outside. And then um, toward the south, where the sun gets low in the wintertime but it's high in the summertime, you can put glass that will be shaded when the sun is high, but it will be in full sun view when the sun is low in the winter. And then you could put, um, it's called a trom wall, T-R-O-M-B-E, and you could put um, a thermal mask trom wall between the glass on the south and your inside. Let the sun hit that battery, that thermal mask battery, and heat up. And now you've just gotten a free battery of heat Every single day, it recharges from the sun, and that battery um, lets its heat go into your space. If that wall were just on the outside with no glass, then it would be equally releasing it back to the outside as it would back into your space. So with the glass there, it says, "No, no, come on in, stay inside where it's warm." <laughs> um, so, so it's usually a combination of the two, and. And there's lots of ways to use that combination, right? So earthen floors are a way to add mass. Um, if, if you use two inches of clay plaster evenly throughout an entire um, hole, it adds enough mass to mitigate temperature swings. So when you have big temperature swings outside and you often um, having super insulation plus two inches of thermal mass, right, two inches of clay plaster all on all the walls would eliminate those temperatures. Yeah, it's remarkable how much you can accomplish on that thermal mass just with a plaster like you were talking about. Now, back to something that you said a little bit earlier, um, one of the risks of having that humidity on the inside when there are major temperature differentials between interior and exterior um, you can get mold blooms. Is there any risk of having actual freezing moisture inside of your walls as well? You mean if they're straw bale walls? Uh, if they're thermal mass walls. With that... Uh, oh, if you have an interior clay wall? If you, no, if you have an exterior uh, earthen wall or thermal mass wall. You were talking about having um, the humidity from the interior. Um, reaching a point on the exterior that's actually at a freezing point and condensing, and that's yeah. where mold can bloom. Is there a risk as well for those right. spaces to actually freeze and expand and, and erode the walls? I, th I feel like I'm not completely understanding your question. So if, if you had a mass material as an exterior wall Correct. between you and the outside, then you will, you will have that condensation point. And because it's a, it's a given point every single time that you have the same temperature differential from inside to outside, you're going to have the same 
condensation point every time, which means um, it's, it's so I'm going to back up a little. It's humidity can travel freely. So humidity is airborne moisture. If that airborne moisture, lift, or just that, can flow, um, is never allowed to condense into liquid water, and it's allowed to flow freely through wall systems, you will not ever have a problem. In, in our climate, there are some extreme tropical climates where you would, but not, not nowhere in the U.S. would you have that. Um, if you have an artificial condensation point, which would be either something that is thermally cold, like metal, or because you can guarantee a, uh, a freezing point inside the wall system. For example, if it's a cob wall and it's, you, know, you generally have a 45 degree differential in the wall, then the, the condensation point is going to be the same place every time. Then what happens is you have this humidity, it's in the air, it's fine, it's causing no problems whatsoever. It hits that point where it can condense, it turns into liquid water, and it fully migrates down the wall over and over, over and over and over and over. And once it gets to 18% humidity, then the mold goes, woohoo, and it blooms, right? And that's also when, um, if you have a biodegradable material, that's also when biodegradation begins. Uh, but you don't have a high-grade material if you have a mass material, generally. So, um, if that if you have a cob wall between heated base and cold, you will have that problem, period. If you bring that cob wall inside, or adobe, or whatever the mass is, you bring it to the inside of your space, and then have, a, have an envelope, have, a, have another sort of um, wall system, whether it's glass or insulation or whatever, between you and the outside, then then you, will, you prevent that from happening. Right. Now, that part I understand really well. Um, the only part of my question that I didn't uh, understand was, is there a risk of the freezing water inside of the walls uh, actually expanding and eroding the material? Oh, well, yeah. The, yes. Excellent question. Yes. Yes. So water is the only thing that's larger as a solid than as a, than as a liquid. So if you have a situation where... Um, ma massive amounts of water can get inside. It probably wouldn't happen just from humidity, um, but if you had massive amounts of water that got inside of a clay wall system and then that wall system froze, then the, the liquid expands and it sort of explodes the clay apart from the inside and it breaks all of the little um, suction cups. Like the, the clay is sticky with these little suction cup platelets. And that water freezing and expanding pops apart those little suction cups, and it becomes weaker and weaker over time. And sometimes that can happen from one freeze event. Um, if you had something like a clay oven and you didn't protect it in winter and it got popping wet and then froze, um, it could it could be rebuilding the next, the next spring. There you go. That, that answers my um, question perfectly. A whole wall system would take bonkers. Yeah. 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 Now. What insulative materials do you recommend to people who can't get straw bales, or if they're too expensive wherever they might live? Yeah, so I'm a big proponent of um, first figure out what your climate is and figure out, okay, would I do best with an insulation material, a mass material, or both, right? So a pure shaded mass material would be great for a hot climate. So when you're talking about staying passively comfortable 
if you lived in a hot climate and you had um, clay walls of some kind or stone or adobe or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever mass material is available to you, and you shaded those walls so that the sun didn't hit them, then you're constantly cooling your space. It's like a wall system that's an air conditioner. Um, but whether you're trying to heat or cool, so whether you're trying to do insulation or thermal mass depends on the climate. So know your climate first and then figure out what kind of material do I need for which application. And then figure out, okay, so I need insulating glass systems because I live somewhere where I'm definitely going to have to heat in wintertime. What do I have available to me? So insulators would include um, sort of in the natural building world, the top ones are tend to be either some kind of um, agricultural fiber, so straw uh, from any kind of grain harvesting. You could use hay, although hay also has to eat as animal food, so if you have something else available, there's probably a higher use for that hay, um, but hay works fine. Um, wood is, is a reasonable insulator. Um, you could use less straw, so if straw was really expensive, but you could get some, you could coat the straw with just a little bit of clay and make a thinner wall, so you would use less straw than you would if you did with did straw mail, and that's called light clay straw, or light straw, uh, light clay, um, in the German word is light clean. Uh, and then there are things, um, so, and hemp would be another agricultural product that is a great insulator. Um, that one's often added with lime to make a, something called concrete, which is a great insulator. And then wood has a has a moderate insulation value, especially if you are sideways to the green. So, um, there's a method for building called cord wood. So, if you have wood really readily available and you have clay, you can use clay to make a mortar and you could build cordwood walls, and those would be insulating. And then there's things like wool, you know, which we don't think of, but, you know, we wear wool sweaters in the winter for a reason because it's a really good insulator because it tracks little air pockets and it does it whether it's wet or dry, so that's a pretty good one. And then there are purchase purchasable products, but those tend to be more expensive, things like um, recycled cotton, you know, things like that. Now, can you explain to me, with all these different types of insulated materials, especially in the case of cordwood, when you're fitting these things together, um, either with mortar or with some other kind of binder, is there a risk of having a thermal bridge that would compromise the insulative properties of the other material you're using? Ah, that's such a good question. So the mortar, with cordwood, the mortar doesn't go all the way through the wall system. You have mortar on the inside, mortar on the outside, and then some other insulation. Usually it's sawdust. Um, so there's no thermal bridge. And if you, yeah, no, no, keep the mortar to the inside and the outside. Yeah, yeah. And that way you don't, the mortar would bridge it. The mortar would be a mass material that conducted um, temperature much more quickly right in between each piece of wood and then any point with But if you put that insulation in between, it's fine. Okay, now, for a much more minimal form of mortar, I know that some people are in favor of dipping straw bales in clay slip before they assemble their walls. Is there any risk of having a thermal bridge with an application of clay that small? So, there's two, way, there's two ways that people use the slip. So, one is to um, dip the face of the bale in, in clay slip so that... When you go to plaster, you already you already have a coating of clay on the face of the bale, 
And the other is when you dip it in where the two bales are going to meet. And I would never do that. Um, so two things. One is you're introducing quite a bit of moisture right into the middle of your wall. And that is the most difficult place for the wall to dry out for a straw bale wall. Straw bale walls are either 18 inches thick or 24 inches thick. They're really, really deep. And so the water that, you know, if you come in four inches from either perimeter, the inside of the bale wall has a very hard time drying out. The outside can dry out, but the inside can't. And so to add something wet right into the center, to me, is a little Because, you know, if it gets up to 18% moisture, you're rotting, right? Not to mention mold, right? So to me, why why would you introduce that? And it's a mass material. So it's a teeny tiny thermal bridge, but it is still a thermal bridge. Okay. Um, so I would not, I wouldn't do it. There's not really a reason to in my opinion. Thank you. That, that answers a completely separate question that I had um, from earlier, but uh, thank you for sorting that out too. Now, that acts as a good way for me to kind of switch gears here. Um, let's talk a yeah. little bit about finishes. What are some of your favorite yeah. additives to plaster to sort of enhance their properties? Well, so first of all, my favorite, favorite plaster is clay plaster. Um, so I use two, two kinds of plaster generally. I use clay plaster and I use lime plaster. And the reason to use um, lime over clay is because you need the durability. So you need the weather resistance um, and you need erosion control. You know, so if you have, like we have a really wet climate. Um, and you could do clay outside, but you would probably be either looking at really deep roof overhang so that the rain doesn't regularly hit your walls, or you're going to be replastering periodically. And most people don't want that kind of media. So my first clarification would be that I do use lime plaster where um, where you need something harder. Lime plaster turns into literally limestone. So you're plastering onto your walls, and it's just crazy durable. Um, but then there's ways to take clay plasters, which I use whenever possible because you can touch them and play with them with your hands and get totally muddy and it's hmm. super fun and kids can do it and any age person and it doesn't matter your skill level you can be productive with clay plaster so um i find them to be just super forgiving super versatile you can get different colors you can get different textures i mean there's just there's really no end I've been doing it for 20 years, and I still learn all the time with clay plasters. So, um, when I'm, so my favorite attitude that I use here is cow dung. Um, and the reason is that because of the digestive system of the cow, they release an enzyme into their poop that makes, um, it increases plasticity of the plaster, which means um, plasticity is when you take a trowel and you run run the trowel over the plaster and you're spreading it onto the wall. It spreads more like cream cheese, like whipped cream cheese, as opposed to cold butter. Yeah, it really does. Um, I know it sounds so it, gross to use that, but if you've ever tried the difference between just a pure clay plaster and one with uh, additive dung, sometimes horse dung too, um, it's yeah. it's awesome. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so well, so the difference with horse dung is horse dung is adding fiber. Right. 
So remember when you asked, um, okay, what would you use if you couldn't have straw bales? Like, let's say you needed fiber in your clay plaster, but you had no fiber, no plant material available to you. You could use horse dung because they basically poop to the breath. Yeah, that's exactly what we used um, when I worked in Africa, and yeah. there was very little vegetation. Oh. It was a, it was mostly a, a desert climate, and the one thing that we had yeah. was a bountiful amount of horse dung, and it really saved us right. plasters. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so the cow poop though has has this enzyme, and what that enzyme does besides the plasticity is it makes the plaster when it hardens it um it's harder as a as a plaster, like uh, sort of its compressive compressive strength, and it's more resistant to water. So, if you um had a had a situation where you needed to be able to scrub the wall on a regular basis, like a like a commercial kitchen or something like that. Um, I'll probably get fired from my job if I say use cow dung in a commercial kitchen plaster. <laughs> if you you know you know what I mean, like if you need to be able to scrub that wall, yeah. <laughs> um, if you need to be able to scrub that, boy, cow dung makes it really really durable and scrubbable and hard, and um, it also polishes. All right, it's like a magical ingredient. Um, and if you get it wet right out of the cow, I knew, did you know we were going to talk about poop? Oh, I knew we were going to talk about poop. I knew what I was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get it fresh, it has the most amount of active enzyme in it right out of the gate. Right. But if you have dried, if you have only access to dried poop, um, what you can do is ferment it. So you just put it yep. in, mix it, rehydrate it with water, and then let it sit for a week. And it will um, basically the enzyme grows, right? Right. Like an active culture. And it's not for the faint of heart, like as well as this works. If, if you're just getting <laughs> started with plasters, fermenting cow dung is really jumping in the deep end. It really does work. But uh, yeah, it's unsavory for a lot of people that I've worked with on workshops. <laughs> so every time I've used it, though, there's sort of that resistance at first. And then if, so if you use a plaster that doesn't have the cow dung first, and then do a batch where you mix in the cow dung, and there's always, like, giggles and ha-ha, and I can't believe we're doing this. And then people plaster with it, and to a person, they're like, oh, my God, this is so much nicer. Oh, yeah. To oh, a yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really mental. It's not, you don't, it doesn't stink. It's not, you know, you don't feel unclean at the end. Well, you're muddy regardless. <laughs> you do want to yeah. wash your hands at the end. <laughs> you do want to wash before lunch. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Well, and the main thing to know for the people who are squeamish about it is give it a couple of days and once it dries, you will never smell that stuff again. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's a little stinky for a couple of days, but if you can get past that point, it's totally worth the hassle. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely worth the hassle. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite additive by far. Um, and for floors as well, so the original African earthen floors were made with um, just their soil, which had clay in it, and cow dung or oxen dung or something, and, um, and they would float the floors. And then use when they dry. Uh, this is going to really go down the deep end now. Um, they would use the cow urine. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they collected it, but they did. Um, to Carefully. seal the floor. And they're like polished concrete, but beautiful. Yeah. 
I mean, they're really hard. They're really durable and gorgeous, like gorgeous. And there are some that are polished with uh, ox blood as well. The proteins in the blood. Oh, yeah, really hard. yeah, because the proteins, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. yeah they were But I don't believe the cows here. I, I can't do it. Well, the thing is, you can collect yeah. urine for a long time, but you can bleed the cow only once. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, this is true. Which is yeah. one thing to consider that's if you consider. only have one cow. That's a big, that's a big consideration. You know, yeah, since we're all sure. about sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for like for the five people who are still listening here, I do have one more question. <laughs> that we didn't lose it to talk about cow food. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, hardcore people who are still with us here. Okay, so a little bit more on plasters. How do you reduce the chance of finishes splitting or pulling away from points where they meet wood or other non-earthen materials? Now, this is one of the things that I see, even with people who are really experienced plasters, who really have their mixes down, this is often one of the weak points or one of the few things that I see in earthen structures that um, seems to be common just about everywhere. Do you have a trick for, for stopping these plasters from splitting away from these points? Yeah. So... Um... So it starts with your substrate. It starts with what are you plastering onto. And if what you're plastering onto is still shrinking or moving or contracting in any way, then by nature, your plaster is going to move with it. So, for example, if you built a straw bale wall and the bales aren't super tight and you put this really heavy plaster on, right, plaster weighs... For every inch of thickness, it weighs 17 pounds per square foot. It's really heavy. So you're basically loading up that straw bale wall with a lot of weight, and it will pull the wall down if you didn't pack it tight. And if it pulls down, you're going to get gaps, right? So, um, so the first thing to know is what is the substrate, how tight is it, um, and was it well prepared ahead of time? Uh, if you, and then the second thing would be to apply your plaster in layers. So, for example, if you didn't pack your straw bale tight and you put your plaster on and it all pulled away because the wall shrank a little bit, um, okay, fill that gap in before you continue, right? Um, because if you have a crack, whether it's on the perimeter or whether it's in the field of your wall, it is highly probable that that crack every single layer of plaster that you put over it, right? So it's going to dismembrate and keep on um, So address all of the cracks. Then the second thing I would look at is um, reinforcing the plaster. So and what I mean by that is just extra fiber. So if um, anywhere that you have a place on the wall where you think might be crack-prone, and that would be uh, joints between two, dis two dissimilar materials, for example, every single edge. Um, it would be around windows, because the windows tend to have to stay rigid through glass, and if the wall moves at all from wind or just general movement of the building, um, you may get crack lines that go on a 45-degree angle off of each corner of a window frame. Yeah, that's often where um, I see them as well. So, so if you... Yeah, exactly. So if you preemptively know hey, I'm probably going to get a crack there, then put more fiber there. 
So what I mean is, if it's a plaster, add as much straw into your plaster as you possibly can to bridge those areas. Um, or, and or, use um, mesh. And that mesh can be either something that you purchase, like a you know, plastic or a fiberglass mesh, or it can be burlap, which works great. And you would apply that right into the, the uh, wet plaster surface. So you plaster on, and then you put your burlap, almost like um, drywall tape, right, where you're, you put the tape in between the seams of the drywall because you know if there's a movement in the house, there will be a crack in the bone. Idea. So, at the top of the wall, where you have where your wall meets the ceiling, I put drywall tape there, right? or mesh of some kind, so that it bridges the ceiling to the wall, so that you don't get a crack along the top. Um, and along all of those corners, I will put a strip of burlap or a strip of some kind of mesh to protect that, and extra straw in all of the plasters for those locations. And then the third most Critical thing that is the easiest to forget is compression. So, um, and I do this with cob as well. If you have a cob wall that's meeting a, a wood um, column, for example, but same with plaster, is you compress your your clay into the um, the material that it's meeting into the wood post or whatever it is. Compress it right at that corner. Not just when you're plastering, but as it gets leather hard, compress it again. And you may do it even a third time or a fourth time. So I would just check it every day, compress, 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 compress into that spot. Um, because what can happen is if you have a clay-rich plaster, it is shrinking as it dries. Because the clay is larger when it's wet than when it's dry. Like lar literally larger volumes. Because it's absorbed all that water into the platelets. And so as it releases the water, it shrinks. And if you don't have enough other ingredients, sand, straw, um, you know, or fiber, whatever your fiber is in general, um, then the clay shrinks enough to actually pull away from the edges. And so you're trying to mitigate that. So, so adding fiber, um, using tape, and by that I mean sort of tape as a global thing. So that could be burlap, which is probably my favorite go-to, um, and compression would be the top. And I try to keep the, before you finish plaster, make sure you don't have cracks in the wall. So fix every crack in the wall before you finish the plaster. And make sure it's no longer shrinking or moving away from the edges. Um, and there's another, there's a tool you can use for this. Uh, and it's called a margin trowel. So if you do all of your edges using um, a margin trowel, and it's basically, it looks like, um, the U.S. version is sort of like a rectangle, maybe an inch wide, maybe three or four inches long, and the handle goes up off of the, the flat part so that you can push flat against the wall, right against all the edges. Um, and then there's a really sporty Japanese version of that that's sort of a little more pointed, so it lets you get into really tricky areas. And um, the folks at Landerland, Landerland.com, that's the Tomi Lander, she tells the Japanese very spectacular. And I got to put that on my um, wish list. Them. I've oh, mostly yeah, worked with, yeah, with uh, trowels and stuff that I've made myself. <laughs> I feel like I'll get yeah. some Yeah, well, those are great, too. Tools. Yeah, it's, it's a whole addiction right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
anybody who's into construction yeah. or building anything, tools are, you know, that's like kid in a candy shop type stuff. If I go into a hardware store, oh my God. if I go through somebody's tool library, yeah, that's, oh, that's the best. <laughs> yeah. So I got a new one for my Yeah, list now. That's but great. good for you for making them. You got a new one? What? I've got, I've got a new. Uh, I've got a new wish list now. New item for it. Excellent. I'll put a link and maybe some pictures on uh, the show notes as well, so that people can find or at least understand what type of trial that you're looking forward to. Oh, that would be awesome! Yeah, yeah. Now you're talking about filling these cracks mostly along the edges, um, especially with earthen walls depending on how good of a job you do trimming them, I know it can vary, especially in workshops, um, your walls are kind of undulating. And, and a lot of people want to try and fill in those gaps and make their walls smoother. What kind of, I guess, scratch coat plaster would you recommend to fill in those gaps so that by the time you're putting in your finished coat, you have so much less work to do? Oh, that's such a great question. And that actually comes up with straw bale walls, too, because no matter how beautifully you trim them, they're never, they're never perfect. Yeah, sure. You always have to fill in gaps. Yeah, so, um, so I think of it as a, as a, a well, on straw bale it's a three-part system, and on cob walls it's a two-part system, because the cob is your part one. But So with straw, the first coat is that you're trying to get a really good bond between clay and the straw, and it can be really thin, and it can be fairly clay-rich, uh, and you're working it into the straw to get a really good bond. Um, and so the 100% goal of the first coat on straw bale specifically is to attach to the straw really well. And and so a, a straw bale wall with the first coat to me would be the equivalent of that cob wall that you just asked about, where you have some undulations in the, in the clay that you want to fill in. So in either case, then the second piece is um, is a uh, so a, pla- a clay plaster that has some sand in it because the sand uh, increases compression strength and it decreases shrinkage because sand. When we talked about clay being larger in volume when it's wet and smaller in volume when it's dry, um, sand is the same volume when whether it's wet or dry. So the sand is not shrinking, and the more sand you have, the more shrinkage you have in the plaster. And then you're making up the difference with a lot of chopped paper. So we are straw ubiquitous and inexpensive, so it tends to be straw. Um, and I run it through like a leaf mulcher one time for that coat, and two times if I need a really fine, you know, if I need shorter fibers. Um, so run it through a leaf mulcher, you end up with pieces that are that vary from oh, maybe half an inch to two or three inches long, so kind of in that range, and add like as much straw as your plaster can handle and still be sticky to go on the wall. And the reason is the fiber, when we were just talking about controlling cracking and all that, the fiber lets you put, it's sort of like internal armature. It will bridge cracks and it will in one pass. So I've done up to, see, I did a wall last week where I put five inches on part of the wall, which would be unheard of in plaster that didn't have a lot of fiber in it. But because it had so much straw in it, um, it's 
draws almost like like an internal structural that that um, makes all of the clay act as one whole mass instead of sheets of mass, and so it tends to stay on the wall. Um, and that lets you build up all kinds of uneven thicknesses without shrinking, without cracking, um, and really level out your wall and make sure that the wall is exactly the shape you want it to be before you do your finished plaster. Because the finished plaster needs to be the same thickness all the way across. So you're going to get uneven drying, Man, I really could use that information when I was first starting out. I made so many mistakes trying to apply <laughs> finished plaster uh, in ways to try and get rid of some undulations when I was first starting out. Man, I hope that uh, helps other people to avoid my earlier mistakes. Well, and fair enough, but you know what I think is actually beautiful is, is to give yourself permission to make those mistakes because that's exactly how you learn. And I've made them and you've made them and everybody else who's ever been there. Yeah, in a natural building, they can be really fun, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've made and, some very comical you know, mistakes. So, yes, right, exactly. <laughs> then you can use them to your advantage. Yeah. <laughs> and if not, at least for the laughs of others. Right, right, exactly. They make for good stories. Exactly. Hey, so before I let you go here... They do... No, go ahead. No, that's... Go ahead. <laughs> before I let you go... Um, how can people get in touch with you in order to learn more about you and to um, see more of your work? Um, probably the best place would be my website, which is um, buildnaturally.com. Um, and if anyone's on Facebook, I do have a Facebook page where I post stuff every day and I try to answer every question that I can, that Facebook lets me see. Um, and that is the Facebook page is uh, Build Naturally with There. And do you have any workshops or classes coming up? Oh yes, I do, and thanks for asking. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I have. Um, let's see, five clay building workshops coming up in Maryland in March and April, and then I have an outdoor kitchen where we're going to build a clay oven and a little rocket grill, um, build a stone wall with clay mortar and a bunch of other fun stuff. That's in May, and then the Cadillac workshop in June, which is a polished lime plaster that you um, polish with olive oil so it makes it waterproof. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I'm going to have to ask you more about that on a future episode. Cadillac is really interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much yeah, for taking your time and answering those questions so wonderfully. I learned a lot from this as well. Um, and if anybody is interested, I actually did an interview with Siggy earlier um and i wrote it out as an article so you can visit the website at abundantedge.com to find our earlier interview and once again thank you so much for taking the time siggy we'll have to talk again soon you are so welcome anytime and it was an absolute honor all right take care thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the abundant edge as always you can find the show notes for this episode at abundantedge.com clicking under the podcast tab on the navigation bar 
There you can also find information for all of our previous episodes. You can also find a wide range of articles all about natural building and permaculture by checking out the news section on the website. And for those of you who are looking to start a natural building project, we also offer a full range of services from consulting, design, and construction, and all of that can be found under the services tab. Now most importantly, these episodes are not meant to be a one-way discussion or lecture series. I would really like for you to help me to make them into more of a two-way dialogue. Share your comments on the website underneath each of the episodes, or email me at info at AbundantEdge.com. I would love to hear some more of your feedback, especially in the early days of these episodes and starting off this podcast. All of your advice and your ideas help to contribute to make these episodes better. I would love to hear what topics you're most interested in hearing more about, and even some people from the natural building and permaculture worlds who we would like to hear interviewed. Now, of course, don't forget to subscribe to these podcasts as well as the newsletter that I put out twice a month full of information on the projects that I've been working on, as well as articles and YouTube videos that I've been inspired by. I look forward to hearing from you soon, and I'll see you on the next episode.